Father, I just echo Brock's prayer this morning that you would indeed humble us. Lord, that as we approach your word and as Jesus, we long to be like your disciples who physically got to sit at your feet. Lord, we long to sit at your feet this morning. Not only to be taught by what you said and did in your physical life, but Lord, to be further instructed by the power of the Holy Spirit that is within us. To open our hearts, and Lord, I pray that you would find within our hearts soil prepared. To receive your word. To be changed by it, Lord, to be refreshed by it, to be convicted by it, and Lord, to receive your joy. As we long to walk in obedience, and God, I just pray that as we um, just recognize in this moment collectively as a body that you are holy, that you are righteous, that you are sovereign. God, we ask that you, because of your goodness, because of your character, would teach us your people as we long to know you more. We long to be closer to you. And Lord, I I thank you that for every believer that's listening, we've been invited to the table. We're at the table. And so Lord, may you find us taking the seat that is the lowliest. Lord, wherever we belong at the table, would you place us there? But Lord, we're just happy to be at the feast. Thank you that your word has a greater nourishment to us than we could ever imagine. And so, Lord, we just ask that you speak it into our lives by the power of your spirit this morning and that you would transform us. Lord, that you would not allow us to be conformed to the patterns of the world, but you would transform us by the renewing of our minds as we seek, Lord, to receive and obey you. Thank you for this time. Would you bless it? Jesus, we ask it in your precious name. Amen. Oh, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you guys. Grab your Bibles. If you have a physical Bible, let's open to Mark. And I'm going to have you turn to chapter 8 to begin our time, although we will be spending our study time in Mark chapter 10. But if you find Mark chapter 8 this morning, if you don't have your physical Bible with you and you'd like one, there should be one in the pew in front of you. It's the, the black one. If you pull out the red one, you're going to be singing songs. Um, so I encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 8 this morning. I'm going to read a passage of scripture that we've already studied to lead into our text in Mark chapter 10. So beginning in Mark chapter 8... Verse 34, let's read the end of this chapter. As Jesus calls the crowd to himself, it says this, Jesus said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. These are the words of the Lord. Having read that passage by way of introduction into what we're going to study this morning, You may not have glanced at the verse prior to that, but it's very important for the context of what I just read to you. And it comes from the situation that happens before Jesus talks about taking up your cross, where Jesus predicts 
his death and resurrection, and Peter, in all his wisdom and knowledge, rebukes Jesus. Because that's what Peter's good at, and that's what we're good at. And you're like, oh, I would never rebuke Jesus. You might think differently at the end of the message. But here, in this chapter, Peter has just attempted to rebuke Jesus. And right right before he goes on and talks about what we just read, just the denial of self, the taking up the cross, the situation prior reminds us of something very powerful. Notice the statement that Jesus makes in the second half of verse 33, right before I started reading. It says this. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. We talked about that when we studied through this text about how Jesus is saying, you are speaking as the enemy does. And Jesus follows it up with this statement. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. And the reason why I want to point that out is because that's really the beginning of a section here in the scriptures. Jesus is now on the road to Jerusalem. This is the final journey. He's heading towards the cross. He has set his face towards the cross. He's talking about his death and his resurrection. He's reminding his disciples and he'll remind them again further along in chapter 10. We'll be there very shortly about his death and what he's going towards. And in the midst of that, Jesus is seeking to correct this problem. He's seeking to correct the issue that we have, that we set our minds on human concerns instead of God's concerns. And all throughout this section, human concerns are being presented to us, mostly on behalf of the disciples, sometimes on behalf of the Pharisees. But human concerns place value in this world above the value of knowing Jesus. They place our focus on the gain of this life. It's choosing to find identity in anything of this world rather than finding identity in Jesus. So seeking human concerns will cause us to compare ourselves to others, to power grab, to speak out of turn instead of listening, to cease to pray, to attempt to do the Lord's work with our own strength, to misunderstand the Lord's purpose and attempt to prioritize for him what we feel is most valuable. And if you go back from where we are here in Mark chapter 10, where we're going to pick up in verse 17, if you go backwards, every single thing that I just said has happened since the end of Mark 34. As you look at Mark 8, 34, excuse me, you're like, Mark 34, Mark 8, 34. It was right in my mind. But if you go back to that passage and you march forward all the way to where we are now, all of those human concerns have come up. They've all been presented before Christ, and he has spoken to them, and he has taught us otherwise. When we seek God's concerns, God's concerns will cause us to count anything to be gained in this life as less valuable than Jesus. That obedience to him and the glory of his kingdom matters more than what I want. It matters more than what I think is valuable. What matters most is what concerns our Heavenly Father. Isn't that the life that Jesus lived? That nothing was more important to Him than what the Father wanted, even in the garden when the cross was looming before Him and Jesus was struggling. He even says in that moment, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet what? Not what I want, but what you want. It's all about the mission that the Father had sent Him to accomplish. 
God's concerns, seeking God's concerns, will cause us to count anything to be gained in this life as less valuable than Christ and obedience to him. Paul, when he departed from the Ephesian church en route to being imprisoned in Jerusalem, said this in Acts 20, 24. He says it really well. And they're crying and they're upset that he's leaving. And Paul says this, but I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I see from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Amen? Paul says, that's my goal. That's all I'm about. He says, for myself, for my own desires, there's no value to that. He says, what has value is to finish my course. Every single one of us is on a different part of a pathway that leads to the finishing of our course. And is that what we are focused on doing? That we would complete the ministry that the Lord has given to us to testify of the gospel of God's grace. That's what we are here to do, church. We are here to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Your life is meant to be a megaphone for the entire world to hear that the gospel of the grace of God has been preached to them by the salvation that is in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. That's why we're together doing the work of the Lord as his body. Paul goes on and says this to the church in Philippi, similar words. In chapter 3, verses, eight through eight, or verses 7 through 8, Paul says this, but everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Nothing is more valuable than knowing him. I almost entitled this message this morning, Great Value. I was so tempted. But I think that now <laughs> we associate great value with lesser value if you shop at Walmart. And it's interesting because I wanted to say this is what great value actually is. And to you, you're just thinking of really cheap green beans. And, and I felt like that would diminish. So I bring it up to stick that in your head. And now I just completely ruined the reason why I didn't entitle the sermon that. But I think that it's interesting how in this life, even things that we say have great value <laughs> really don't. We began our text this morning with this in our minds. What are the concerns of God? What are the human concerns? And where do I land with this? This brings us to a text that speaks of a young man who came to Jesus in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. And it gives us an understanding of what a right response and view of the world around us is and an understanding of what's most valuable. Jesus teaches us this, and here we'll begin in verse 17 of Mark 10. It reads this way. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. 
But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. From Matthew's account, we know that this man who knelt before Jesus on his journey was young. From Luke's account, we know that he was a ruler of some kind. And here, from Mark's account, we know that he was rich. Therefore, we call this passage the rich young ruler. Because he was all of those things. Even though, as we see just a few verses into this text, this young man had followed the law since he was a youth, he still seeks out Jesus to discover what he must do to inherit eternal life. Now, either he felt that something was missing, which he had yet to accomplish, or he sought to validate the life that he had lived as satisfactory in securing eternal life for himself. It's one of those two options. He was either looking for something more to do, or he was seeking approval from Jesus because it's clear that this is a powerful teacher, that he was a powerful rabbi, noted amongst the Gospel of Mark as not like the other rabbis. And so maybe he was seeking some kind of affirmation from Jesus that because of the life he had lived, that that would validate his eternal life punch card. At the very beginning, we have a common flaw that we find in ourselves and see in the world around us. Whether it was option one or option two, this young man believed in salvation by works. This was a person who believed that what he had done had earned him eternal life or that what he could do would earn him eternal life. And we shouldn't think ill of him because he very respectfully comes to Jesus seeking something that's missing or seeking some kind of confirmation or affirmation. And when Jesus rebuffs him, we shouldn't hear it as if Jesus is verbally slapping him. He's not looking at what he called me. It's not like that at all, you know. He's challenging. It's funny that I, I don't know why I do it. He's, he's challenging something fundamental within this young man that needs to be challenged. It has to be challenged. The concept and the reality of who can be truly good. It's like when your kids are using words and you hear them talking to each other and you hear one of them just throw out a word that they don't understand and you as a good parent go, hey, define that word. And your kid freezes and blinks hard at you and they're like, I think, even if they know the word, you just like introduce a little terror into their life. Try it sometime, it's really fun. But you know, like if I, I used to do it to youth kids all the time when I taught youth group, they'd be like, oh, and what's a uh, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious? I'm like, define that word. They're like, I don't know. <laughs> Mary Poppins, I don't know. Like it's just, it just, sometimes it just stops you in your tracks and it makes you think about what you really mean. Isn't that what Jesus has been doing throughout the gospel of Mark? When the Pharisees came to him at the beginning of this chapter and they, they asked him about divorce, what does Jesus do? He takes them to why God created marriage. He doesn't even deal with their conversation about divorce. He says, you know what God did in the beginning was he made marriage to look like this. And so Jesus always goes for the heart of the issue. And that's exactly what he's doing with the rich young ruler. He says, why are you calling me good? It's not because he's like, now, you know, I am good, but... It's not that at all. He says, define for what, what makes something good. The question of inheriting eternal life is founded by an understanding of Jewish works of righteousness, common for this time. Remember the rabbis of the day that were teaching in popular culture in the first century. 
This is a common conversation, and an understanding of Jewish works of righteousness is in play here for this rich young ruler in the middle of his time. What must I do is not sourced in a yearning for someone or something to believe in. It's sourced in a working mindset. What must I accomplish? What hoops do I need to jump through? Remember, this is how the Pharisees taught. Keep these laws. The Lord's question and statement are so important. Why do you call me good? Jesus asks him. No one is good except God alone. In other words, Jesus is saying this. Before you address me with that title, you had better think soberly about what the implications are and especially what they are for you. Jesus is stopping him in his tracks and saying, if you're going to call me good, There is none good except God alone. Does Jesus deny being God in human flesh? No. He's actually letting this young man establish in his mind just who he thinks Jesus is, especially in light of what Jesus is about to tell him. You're going to have to make a decision. This is going to be put back upon you to make a decision about what Jesus is going to say. At the end of the conversation, is Jesus still going to be good in this young man's eyes? Will Jesus cease to be a good teacher? You'll notice later on in the text, when Jesus says, you know the commandments, he says, teacher, he doesn't call him good anymore. Just an interesting little note about the text. However, what does he believe about the goodness of Jesus at the end of the conversation? Does God cease to be good when the answer to our questions are not satisfactory? Because does God cease to be good when we don't understand what he's doing? Is our definition of goodness based on what we want, not who he is? His character, his nature. Notice that Jesus asks him first. It's based on the firm Jewish belief, based on the Old Testament teaching, that if you kept the law, you would live. So he asks him about the law. Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 16 would be like a classic example of where this keeping the law, giving you life mindset would come from in a young Jewish boy like this. It reads this way, see today, I have set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity, for I'm commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commands, statutes and ordinances so that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God may bless you in the land you are entering to possess. So Jesus starts where he's at. He starts where he's at, and he says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He says to him, teacher, no good, this time just teacher, teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. Now, don't think that that's an arrogant statement because we, we read that, I think, through the lens of the Sermon on the Mount because you're good Christian boys and girls, right? And you've, you remember, and, and we'll go there in a minute, but you're reading it through that lens. Read it through the lens of Old Testament law and how it was viewed in that time. Jesus gives him a condensed summary of the second table of the law. We shouldn't see the confident response of the young man as being arrogant. The outward obedience to the law was something that even Paul had considered himself successful at keeping in a blameless manner. In a blameless way, before he became a follower of Jesus, he says with the law, well, we'll read it right here, it's Philippians 3. It'll be up on the screen for you, verses 4 through 6. Paul says, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Paul says when it comes to doing it right according to the flesh, checking all the boxes, blameless. And you're like, oh, Paul, you sinner. No, you have to think of it through the cultural mindset. That was the culture of his day. Paul goes on to say, I'm the chiefest of sinners. He's cool. I mean, cool as in he was honest. But like, you guys, this young man is about to be challenged in the same way that Jesus challenged Paul when he slapped him off that donkey on the road to Damascus. I don't know if he slapped him, but you know, he got knocked down pretty good. That the law required an inner obedience which no man could comply with. Did you catch that? The law required an inner obedience which no man could comply with. No human being can comply with the obedience that is commanded within your heart. It's this inner obedience that Jesus revealed in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. I told you we were going to go there. Verses 21 through 22, you've heard it said to our ancestors. Notice Jesus is going to speak to the situation he's in. He did it in the Sermon on the Mount prior. Do not murder. Whoever murders will be subject to judgment. In verse 22, he says, but I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. The law requires an inner obedience that no human being can comply with. Because every single one of us feels that weight of conviction when that's read. Oh, I've done that. I did it in traffic on the way here. I did it when I walked out the front door. Jesus gives another example of the need for inner obedience in verses 27 through 28 of Matthew 5, still Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. More conviction, more brokenness, more need for inner healing. Sin is a condition that lies within the dark recesses of the heart. It's not just what you see. It's what you don't see. It's what's deep in here. Goodness is not accomplished by doing the right things. True goodness will be lived out from a pure heart. And there's only one way to have a pure heart. Because every single one of our hearts was born into sin and was enslaved to it, as Paul explains in Romans 7. We must be born again. We can love nothing in this life more than our love for our Creator because what we love most, we worship. Did you catch that? What you love most, you worship. Sermons could have reiterated these teachings from before, he could have gone back and said, you know, I taught him. You should pick up the MP3. It's great. Listen to the podcast. But instead, Jesus is leading this man along a very personal, relational conversation. And we see this by the way Jesus responds when the young man's confident answer comes back. I've kept all this from my youth. I must be good. Everything the teacher said, I must be fine. 
Jesus looks at him. Look at verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. This is a very truthful statement. We all want goodness. But so few of us wanted enough to pay the price. We all have a yearning for goodness, for the goodness of God. But there are few who wanted enough to pay the price that it costs. If you want to know what the cost looks like, I read it to you at the beginning of our time together. It's Mark 8.34. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That is the cost for goodness. Jesus loves this man. He loves those who are lost even though they think that they're found. He loves those who love the things of this world more than him. He loves those who love religion more than him. And he calls to any who will listen to let go of the love of this world and any other created thing and enter into eternal life through him to worship him and him alone. To have no other idols. And it's crazy to me how often I think about the good things that God has given to me becoming idols in my life. Keller said it really well. He said, you know, most idols are good things, good gifts that God's given to us, but we've made ultimate. We've taken something that God gave us in his grace and because he's good and we've lifted it up and exalted it above him and said, I'm going to worship this thing over you. This young man loved his possessions more than God. I love what Bob said earlier. Instead of having possessions, his possessions possessed him. They owned him. But I see it as a a worship issue. These are idols that matter more to him. His definition of goodness was contingent on God allowing him to have the possessions he loved so dear. And his opinion of God's goodness was changed when Jesus asked him to let go of the object of his worship. The cost of goodness was too high. Because he leaves grieving because his love is for those things and not for the Lord. His true love wasn't for God. His love was for himself. He kept the law for his own benefit, not for the glory of God. And ultimately, we can look at that, I think, and we can start to look down on other people and say, wow, what a messed up idolatrous problem you have. Instead of looking in the mirror and saying to ourselves very clearly, my heart is an idol-making factory. I make idols all day long. And the word of God brings conviction into our hearts and says, does it grieve you when God looks at you and says, are you prepared to lose all of that to gain eternal life? Are you prepared to let all of it go? Or is it too precious to you? See Leslie Mitten states regarding the rich young ruler, the only way to life is through the narrow gate of full surrender. Did you catch that? The narrow gate of 
full surrender. My goal here this morning is not just to say things that are clever. My goal here is that every single one of us as the church congregation and body of transform would bow our knees and be in a place of full surrender because it's the only way to life. And it's, and, and, and Mitten goes on to say, and through the, that gate, we may take not what we want, but only what God allows. For this man, his wealth was the hindrance. And church, I have to say it because it is weighing on my conscience for myself and for this church. What is the hindrance that you hold on to that's preventing you from entering? And maybe we look at this and go, but I'm saved. That's great. What's preventing you from your worship? What's preventing you from your intimacy with Jesus? What's blocking your way? What's the hindrance? Is it a person? Is it a place? Is it a thing? Whatever noun it is, we must address it. Nothing can stand in our way because if we walk away grieving and dejected when God says, I want you to let that thing go, we have an idol problem. We have a worship problem. And I have these issues in my life just like you do. When I think about things in my life that matter to me the most and God says, I want you to give it back to me, it's amazing how quickly he reveals to me that I see things as possessions and not stewardship. That I'm a steward. I'm a shepherd for people and I'm a steward of the things God has given to me. They don't belong to me. I don't know if you realize this, but that old movie is so right. You can't take it with you. You can't take anything from this life with you. That's why Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his life? You can't give anything in exchange for that. You can't purchase it back. What do we value? Is there something in this life that we cherish more than him? Because the only way to life is through that full surrender to Jesus. I think that a lot of times we want to believe that because we serve the Lord, we're going to get everything we want. And we start becoming little spoiled brat Christians who are entitled. Sorry, I'm one of them. I'm a recovering Christian spoiled brat who's really entitled and everyone goes, hi, Mike. We are like this. This is who we are. Because we have flesh and because we have sin in our lives. And I think that a lot of times we put ourselves in situations of other Old Testament biblical characters. And we're like, you know, if I do this because God told me to do this, then he's going to bless me beyond my wildest imaginations. You just keep on serving the Lord. And before you know it, riches and wealth and the kingdom and everything's going to be mine, thus saith the Lord. I wonder how the apostles would feel about that teaching. Do you ever stop and realize that we like to compare ourselves to really successful people more than people who get completely broken? You know, we look at ourselves and we're like, I just want to be like, "Mm, who's my favorite biblical character? I want to be like Moses, you know? And I'm finally going to figure it out. God's going to bless me and lead all these people. We won't talk about the end of the story. Or I want to be like David, you know, I'm like the king and God's going to bless me and all I need. Oh, he did have that whole situation though. 
But if he had done it right, everything would have worked out perfectly. Therefore, prescriptively, not descriptively, I'm going to do all of my life to look just like that. Do you think that Peter thought for himself that when he started to follow Jesus and he left his successful fishing operation behind, that things were going to be even more liquid down the road with Jesus because of all the blessing? Or do you think that he saw himself upside down crucified? Do you think that the apostles understood that they were going to their death to follow Jesus? What are you prepared to lose in this life to serve Jesus? What am I prepared to lose? What are we holding on to? Do we understand that there is nothing in this life that is worth having in comparison to relationship and the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord? And what are you ready to give up? What are you ready to lay down? What are you ready to sacrifice? Because I will tell you this, church, he is worthy of everything that we can bring and so much more. He is worthy of every bit of suffering that I can go through in this life. Are you ready to lay your life down so that his name can be lifted up? You're so selfish. I'm so selfish, I'm so broken. I put myself and my desires over what he wants. And church, Jesus looks at us and he loves us just like he loved this rich young ruler and he says, here's what you need to do. Jesus told him that because he loved him. Jesus told him that because he wanted this young man to follow him. And if Jesus looks at you and I and says, I want you to give this up for me and we walk away grieving, do you know what we're not doing? Following him. cannot emphasize enough you saw i'm very upset you see how worked up i am right now do you understand i don't do this every day i promise do you guys understand how serious this is do you understand that the time to lay everything down is now it's not later stop holding out on obedience for what sacrifice would we consider the goodness of God to no longer be good in our eyes? What changes our opinion of what's valuable? What do we possess, better stated, what do we steward of which should Jesus request us to relinquish it? We would say that that cost of goodness is too high. Do you know what's interesting? Is Jesus talked about this in a parable. In the parable of the sower, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus talked about these different types of soil that seed falls upon. In verses 18 and 19, he says this, Others are like seed sown among thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. I present to you, sadly, and may it not be said of us any longer, the American church. What could we actually see happen around the world for the sake of the gospel if the church would lay everything down and say, I'm willing to not only give it all, but I'm willing to be crucified. I'm willing to die for this to happen. 
I'm willing to give my life for it. After all, isn't that what Paul pleaded with us to do in Romans 12 when he says, I'm begging of you, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Could this be us this morning? That as the seed falls on our hearts, we look at ourselves and we're like, I, I'm willing to give 80% to the Lord. I'm willing to give this much of what I'm going to do for Him. But I'm going to hold back this one thing. I'm going to find my identity in this one thing. I won't let that go. And I'm not even, maybe it's a possession, but maybe it's a talent. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's even something that was really good, that was clearly a gift of God, that we've made ultimate. What are you ready to be? What are you ready to give up so that the Lord can be exalted? My prayer for us is that we would be those who hear the word and we welcome it and we produce 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown. I want to be the good soil. And you know what? If that means I have to go all geriatrical up here and I need to go home and I need to start going through my life, which, trust me, I have been this week, bit by bit, and start letting things go, then so be it. We're a part of a body because we're supposed to hold each other accountable for doing that. Is the Lord going to bless you for obeying and walking with him? You bet he is. Think eternal life. Don't think physically present. Could he? Sure. He absolutely can. If he does, keep giving it back. Keep being a good steward. But if he calls you to suffering, are we ready to suffer for the name? Are we ready to suffer for Jesus? This young man walked away from Jesus, sadly grieving. And Jesus is going to go on in the next section. We'll talk about this next Sunday. And he's going to say how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He loves this young man. Don't think that he's making any accusations against him. He's speaking truth. But he's going to say, what is it, prophet? To reiterate that teaching from Mark 8 here in Mark 10 next week, we'll talk about possessions in the kingdom together. But church, I just want you guys to know, I, I wouldn't do this if I didn't love you. I wouldn't pastor if I didn't love you. I wouldn't be a leader and an elder in a church if it wasn't a calling. Trust me. It's really hard. It's really hard because I have to stand up here and I have to be really honest about my own failure. I have to be really honest about how much I have been rearing up idols in my own life. And that I'm right there with you and that we need to do this together. We need to walk this path out together. What will it look like for this church body? To recognize the things that are hindering us from entering into this. Well, I'll say 30, 60, 100 times yield of the fruit that God wants to bear in us. Remember, it won't look like worldly success. It'll look like heavenly success. It'll look like the kingdom of God here on this earth. Father, I pray over this church. I pray over 
these people that I've been called to minister to. Lord, as an under-shepherd, Jesus, to your lordship. As a leader, Lord, it just, it makes me tremble. It humbles me so much to think that I have so many things in my own heart to wrestle with. I feel the same as Paul in Romans 7. There's so many times I feel like I'm in this wrestling match within my own heart, within my own life. And Lord, I thank you that you inspired him to write the next chapter in Romans 8 where he says there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, for your church here present, this is not a condemning message. This is a challenge to rise and to look like you and to walk like you, to spend time with you, to be in fellowship with you. Jesus, you are calling us to follow you. You look at us in your love and your compassion. You don't let us stay in the mud and the junk that we're sitting in. You don't hesitate to rebuke Peter, and you love Peter. You don't hesitate to speak truth to this rich young ruler because you love him. And so, Lord, you've called us to walk with you. You've called us to a closer walk than the one that we had when we walked in these doors today. Every single one of us came to church this morning for a reason. Help us to understand what that reason is. Why am I here? Is it because I came to gather with the body to worship the King of glory? Through song, through prayer, through receiving your word and living it out. Lord, if there is any other reason that we are here, Gathered as your body, would you reveal to us, Lord, if we have idols, things that matter more. Jesus, I ask for your spirit to fill us in this time. Lord, again, I ask that none of these words would be heard in condemnation, but by conviction that your joy would rush upon us, Lord, as you reveal to us that you are the answer. You are the one who heals our hearts. You are the one who strengthens us to follow you. Lord, may we hold nothing more dear than you. May we consider nothing worthy of our worship as you are. If you keep your eyes closed and your heads bowed, I just want to share something with you guys, but I want you to consider this in in kind of a, contemplative prayer. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I had a really hard day Thursday. I took a piece of paper and I wrote the word why in the middle of it. And all around the word why, I wrote questions fitting with why. Why this? Why that? Why the other? Some very personal things. The Lord was convicting me of, rattling me with questions I couldn't answer. I I, I just, I, I looked at the questions and it was too much. And I probably wrote 
10, 12 things on that paper all around this giant word. Why? And the last question that I wrote was, why should I keep going? It hit me like a thunderbolt. It hit me so firmly that I didn't even know how to respond to and it didn't fix everything when the answer came. It's just been this truth that's been growing in my mind and in my heart. I turned over the paper and I didn't answer any of the questions. I turned over that piece of paper and I just wrote worthy. And then three words above it that says because he is. All the whys in your life right now. Questions that you may not be able to answer. Questions that I had this week. All answered with a really simple, simple statement. Because he's worthy. I don't have to understand why certain situations are what they are. Why my feelings are what they are. Why I've been asked to do things that I have to do. All I need to know is that He is worthy of everything. Every sacrifice. Every offering I can give. Every effort. And to know that He is worthy and that I'm saved by grace means that I'm not earning anything by bringing these things to Him. I'm not bringing them to earn His favor. I'm not bringing these sacrifices to Him because I have to. I'm bringing them to Him because He is worthy. He's worthy of it all. Jesus, thank you. Lord, thank you for giving me a church family that I can be real with. That I can be honest with. That I can be vulnerable with. I don't care if I'm crying in front of them. I don't care if it makes anyone think that I'm weak because I know that no matter what, in every weakness I have, your power is perfected in it. You are worthy. I pray, Lord, that there's people here this morning that start to share with each other their pain, their questions, their struggles. Pray, Lord, that that's, that would be something that happens in community groups this fall. As people get to know each other, they'd start talking about these things. They'd start sharing and finding accountability and encouragement. And it would be because you are worthy. Because, Lord, we recognize that when we come and we're real with each other, Lord, that your, your power is just perfected in that weakness. And, and God, I know that you're going to use this body, this church, 
for your purposes. So Jesus, thank you for being the head. Thank you for being our atoning Savior. Thank you for being the Lamb. Thank you for being the victor. We worship you this morning together. We just thank you.